We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. little family how is everybody doing this month good that's good hopefully good if not then hopefully may is better but as you may have seen over on patreon you are stuck with me for a little bit as christy is taking a break from the show but have no fear i have brought the weird. And with that being said, this month I figured we would talk about the history, crimes, and scandals of Willowbrook State School. Known as one of the country's largest state schools, this former institution in Staten Island, New York, definitely has some devastating themes associated with it. Given the severity of the crimes and injustices that occurred here, listener discretion is strongly advised. The Willowbrook State School was built in 1942 with intentions to be a facility for children with intellectual, mental, and physical health disabilities and concerns. However, that plan was kind of scrapped momentarily as it would then be converted to an army hospital during World War II. This institution would be called the Halloran General Hospital. According to reports, there was talk about turning the hospital once World War II was done over to a veterans administration office for disabled veterans. However, sometime in October of 1947, the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene interjected and the original plan for the children's facility was re-proposed and agreed to move forward on. The facility, which was built on a total of 375 acres, was originally designed to house upwards of 4,000 individuals with, once again, developmental, mental, and physical disorders. The doors opened in 1947, and although it was called a, quote, state school, education appeared to be not necessarily a highlighted program to offer residents. Willowbrook basically was an asylum, or a residential facility, for the previously identified groupings of children. According to the YouTube video uploaded by Annalisa Pina, most of the time residents were dropped off or abandoned on the property by their family members, presumably who felt like they could no longer care for their loved ones. I'm sure some families assumed that they were probably doing what was best for their loved ones, as I think that the idea of the facility was to basically to provide care and support for the children. Unfortunately, as we know from previous asylums or related facilities from this era, that wasn't necessarily the outcome. According to an article by the SI Live website by Kristen F. Dalton, overcrowding at Willowbrook became a publicly known issue by 1965. This was further echoed by Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who went to visit and see the conditions at Willowbrook in 1965. Here is a direct quote from Senator Robert F. Kennedy from the documentary, The Last Disgrace, which please note, I did use the original quote. However, I did change one word. I nicked out the R word because I hate that word so very much. But alas, here is the direct quote. I visited the state institution for the mentally disabled, and I think particularly at Willowbrook, we have a situation that borders on a snake pit, that the children live in filth, that many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because of lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of adequate manpower. There's very little future for those children or for these children or for those who are in these institutions. Both need tremendous overhauling." 
end quote. Robert Further was quoted to state that the workers at Willowbrook were not at fault of the conditions, but that, quote, everyone was at fault. There were 2,000 more patients residing in the buildings of Willowbrook, which became more apparent in an expose done by American journalist Geraldo Rivera in the 1970s. The building is already overcrowded. I think at one point, and we'll get to the exact number, I think soon, but it was overcrowded by 2,000 more individuals than it was supposed to house. So take that in consideration of how crowded this place was. I mean, saying 2,000 and seeing 2,000 are two different things. And I would recommend if you're in the right headspace to do it, to definitely watch The Last Disgrace on YouTube because you get definitely more of a visual understanding of how overcrowded this place really got. So now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the exposés, and I'm going to focus a little bit heavily on Geraldo's exposé, in which according to his own Wikipedia page, he was working for the WABC-TV in the 70s as a reporter. In early January of 1972, Geraldo was supposedly contacted by Dr. Michael Wilkins, a former staff member of Willowbrook. Dr. Wilkins called Geraldo after reportedly being fired from Willowbrook after urging parents with children residing in building number six specifically to kind of get together and rally for improvement treatment for their children. Geraldo explained in the documentary The Last Disgrace that Dr. Wilkins invited him, journalist Jane Curtin, and a camera crew to visit Willowbrook, unannounced and uninvited by the facility's administration team. Jane Curtin, according to an article by George Frey for Untapped Cities, reportedly was the first known journalist to print an expose about Willowbrook in the Staten Island advance. Jane reportedly was able to witness the conditions prior to the filming of The Last Disgrace by getting two social workers to kind of let her in. So the semi-invited crew, and I say semi-invited very haphazardly, but the semi-invited crew goes to Willowbrook and records quite the scene on site. In the footage, which there are clips on YouTube as previously mentioned from the original documentary, viewers witness multiple children primarily being left on their own. Some children were clothed, most were not. Most of the children can be witnessed not doing anything, rather staring at the walls around them or at the floor. To elaborate further, I'm going to directly quote Geraldo from the Last Disgrace documentary. Quote, there was one attendant for perhaps 50 severely and profoundly disabled children. Children lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces. They were making a pitiful sound, a kind of mournful wail that is impossible for me to forget. This is what it looked like. This is what it sounded like. But how can I tell you about the way it smelled? It smelled of filth, it smelled of disease, and it smelled of death, end quote. What seems like a travesty to the crew was the everyday norm for those residing and working at Willowbrook. The children assumedly spent many days and nights not being mentally stimulated whatsoever, which appeared pretty evident in the documentary. There was little, if any, consistent programming being done, and little being offered to residents other than a roof over their head sometimes some clothes, food, and access to facilities, aka bathrooms. Now, listeners may be wondering, what would cause all these conditions? For starters, and the biggest elephant in the room, severe lack of funding and budget cuts. Between the 1960s and 70s, the state of New York reportedly entered a period of economical reduction. This reduction formulated a hiring freeze for Willowbrook, and other facilities being sought after by the Department of Mental Hygiene. Months after this 
hiring freeze happened, Willowbrook reportedly lost approximately 600 employees through attrition, which is a business lingo meaning that employees departed from their job for like a plethora of reasons. I had to Google this because I've never heard it before, but basically just echoes that a bunch of staff left. According to the documentary, The Last Disgrace, the proposed state budget for 1971 to 1972 was recommended to, quote, hold the line in terms of an increase of fundings for the mental hygiene department. The budget for the department then experienced a cut of approximately $630 million to only $600 million before being trimmed down again to $580 million. So basically, we start off at $630 million and then make our way down to $580 million. Assuming during or after these budget cuts, it's not really clear, Willowbrook lost an additional 200 staff members, bringing the total number of staff losing their jobs or leaving to 700. With that being said, it's kind of a clear equation to me. Less funding plus less staff equals not as much support for clients. On top of less support in the therapeutic sense, it also means that more than likely there was less intensive physical care when it came to maintaining healthy lifestyles for patients. Two days after Geraldo and the crew were at the facility, another camera crew was reportedly given an authorized tour of Willowbrook. In the new footage, the kids were examined to be fully dressed, fully attended to, and overall happy, which this is a complete 180 from what Geraldo, Jane, and their camera crew had previously seen. And to be honest, it just seemed a little bit staged, if you ask me. That's just my personal opinion from what I saw. Take that with a grain of salt, but seemed a little sus. In response, Geraldo and his crew went back to Willowbrook unannounced on January 10th. As described in the Last Disgrace documentary, it was just a repeat of their last visit. Patients were left alone, naked, seemingly fending for themselves. Others also captured in writing about the conditions of Willowbrook at this time. So basically, it kind of seemed as if the secrets of Willowbrook were slowly seeping out from the walls into the public. And the more that people actually were hearing about these stories and seeing what was going on, I think the concern slowly but surely started growing as to what was happening and why this was happening. Unfortunately, though, some could argue that the information about Willowbrook kind of came out a little bit too late. And this brings us into the hepatitis studies. I'm going to give a little bit of an special trigger warning for this section because if you thought the beginning portion of what I told you going on at Willowbrook was bad, this really kind of blows things out of proportion. As some may guess, when it comes to residential facilities or any long-term care facilities of sorts, they're kind of bound to have an outbreak or two of various different diseases, such as, well, COVID-19 in the last two years, we've seen a lot of long-term care facilities, group homes, and what have you experience outbreaks of COVID-19. And I think this is because when you have a select population potentially immune compromised or perhaps they have fragile health, you have them living under one roof. And if one person within that facility gets sick, it's bound to spread very fast. It's kind of what happens in communal living situations. When it came to Willowbrook, however, the outbreaks manifested into medical experimentation.
So hepatitis outbreaks began within the first few years of Willowbrook opening its doors, and it was primarily the hepatitis A strain that was the most common. In a direct quote from the CDC website in terms of what Hep A is, quote, Hepatitis A is a vaccine-preventable liver infection caused by the hepatitis A virus. The hepatitis A virus is found in the stool and blood of people who are infected. Hepatitis A is very contagious, and it can be spread when someone unknowingly ingests the virus, even microscopic amounts, through close personal contact with an infected person or through eating contaminated food or drink. Symptoms of Hep A can last for up to two months and include fatigue, nausea, stomach pain, and yaundice. Most people with Hepatitis A do not have long-lasting illnesses, end quote. And just to add a little bit of quick tidbit information before we kind of dive in further into the Hep A studies, the Hep A vaccine wouldn't come out until years later in 1995 for the United States. So since the 1950s and onwards into the 1970s, medical researchers who were aware of the outbreaks at Willowbrook decided to use these to try and understand Hep A better, meaning they saw an opportunity to basically, and we'll get to it, but basically exploit the patients at Willowbrook. The medical researchers were Saul Krugman from New York University, Joan P. Giles of the New York School of Medicine, and Robert McCollum from Yale University. And supposedly they were contacted by Willowbrook staff in order to try and control the outbreaks. Saul and Robert would allegedly monitor patients between the ages of 5 to 10 years old with Hep A after providing them antibodies to see if this would kind of combat the infection. This might sound fine to some, however, it gets worse. Apparently Saul in particular would feed live hepatitis A from other patients' stool samples to approximately 60 healthy children in order to apparently, quote, figure out what would happen next. Another form of the experiment also involved infecting healthy children at Willowbrook with the virus through their chocolate milk mixture, according to a Forbes article. The children, without a doubt, became extremely ill. And Saul's apparent response to doing this to the children at Willowbrook was that most of them would get Hep A anyways, so why not test it, especially if it was to advance healthcare? The doctors eventually learned how much time it would take for Hep A to display symptoms in patients, how long the recovery period was, and how long the virus would appear again if submitted again. Basically, the experiments were done to test if someone who had recovered from Hepatitis A would remain immune or if they could get reinfected again. Similar to the child patients involved in the MIT Science Club, which we covered back in February of 2022, I don't necessarily believe that the children involved in this Hep A studies at Willowbrook were properly informed or given proper consent to participate. Now, I will say I did read some reports that claim that Saul did tell patients' parents in the 60s that their children were participating in procedures for vaccinations, in which under this guise, some reportedly provided written consent for their children to participate. Saul himself wrote in a paper for the University of Chicago that they did receive consent from parents, and to elaborate that in a direct quote from said paper to kind of paint the picture a little bit further, quote, only children whose parents gave consent would be in Included. Our method of obtaining informed consent changed progressively during the course of the studies. In 1956, the information was conveyed to individuals' parents by letter or personal interview, end quote. Having these experiments done was even used as an upper hand to allow parents to think that their children were going to be receiving better care. And I can explain this from a Forbes article by Leah Rosenbaum. Quote, Dr. Krugman offered several patients, including Nina Gallens, the ability to jump the line and have their children put in the newer, cleaner research wards with more staff. 
This was only done if they joined the experiments. Nina's mother, Diana McCourt, was quoted to say in the Forbes article, I did feel coerced. I felt like I was denied help unless I took this opportunity end quote, which to me just kind of boasts to how unethical and disgraceful this so-called medical study was. No one should feel coerced or pushed or bribed into doing something that they don't want to do, period. End of discussion. In a direct quote from the vaccinologist Maurice Hillman from Wikipedia to kind of emphasize my thoughts and feelings on this, quote, they, the Willowbrook studies, were the most unethical medical experiments ever performed on children in the United States, end quote. The hepatitis studies were eventually discontinued, and as far as my understanding from what I saw online, Saul never received any legal ramifications against what he did. According to the previously referenced Forbes article by Leah Rosenbaum, Saul went on to become the head of pediatrics at New York's University School of Medicine, then was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. He also authored a textbook of pediatric infectious diseases, received various awards, and helped to develop the first rubella and measles vaccines. Saul reportedly stood by his work at Willowbrook until his death in 1995. In a direct quote from Saul's article in the Reviews of Infectious Diseases, which was released in 1986 to kind of elaborate more as to his thoughts on the study, quote, I am as convinced today as I was at the time that our studies were ethical and justifiable. This judgment is based on knowledge of the extraordinary conditions that existed in the institution, as well as on an assessment of the potential risks and benefits for the participants. While I agree with the critics of medical research who state that the ends, successful accomplishments, do not justify the means, I believe that this generalization does not apply to our Willowbrook studies. Under the conditions that existed in the institution, all children were constantly exposed to the naturally acquired hepatitis virus, end quote. Robert, who once again was Saul's apparent partner, kind of led the same path as Saul, it seems. Robert was appointed to chairman of epidemiology and public health in 1969 and named the Dean of Dartmouth Medical School and Professor of Community and Family Medicine in 1982. And I say that Robert led the same path as Saul, being that there was no slap on the hand for any of his participation in the Willowbrook studies, and he went on to live a very, you know, considerably successful career. I couldn't find any information about the other researcher, Joan, other than she may have passed away in 1972 based off of one of Saul's articles in the Reviews of Infectious Diseases. At the end of the day, the researchers all used vulnerable people, aka those at Willowbrook, to their advantages. And whether they went about it in a way that they thought was ethical in today's standards, it really isn't. No one involved directly with the hepatitis studies, aka the researchers or staff involved, never served any jail time. As far as my understanding, no fines, no loss of licenses, nothing. They basically got their research and left freely to once again have really successful careers. Although the original saying is, all good things come to an end, it's good to know that awful things also come to an end as well. A class action lawsuit was reportedly filed on March 17th of 1972 by parents of children residing at Willowbrook, the Legal Aid Society, and the New York Civil Liberties Union, attesting to the overcrowding and inhumane conditions. The lawsuit allegedly claimed that the conditions at Willowbrook violated the constitutional rights of residents. Parents outlined multiple violations, including reports of 
of confining residents for indefinite periods, failing to release residents eligible for release, failing to conduct periodic evaluations of residents to assess programs and refine goals and programming, failure to provide habilitation for residents, not providing adequate educational programs or such such as speech, occupational, or physiotherapy, overcrowding, lack of privacy, failure to provide protection from theft of personal property, assault, or injury, inadequate clothing, meals, and facilities, including toilet facilities, confining residents to beds or chairs or to solitude, reports of lack of compensation for work performed, inadequate medical facilities, and, of course, understaffing and incompetence in professional staff. An activist and staff member named Elizabeth Lee, who had helped parents throughout the lawsuit progress, was actually fired in 1972, reportedly due to her activism, which is just absolutely appalling. By 1975, the case was settled in which the state of New York was stated that they needed to protect Willowbrook's residents from harm, meaning anything of the previous mentioned violations, they had to protect them from that. They had to make sure that these violations wouldn't happen again. But this order didn't necessarily happen right away, according to a New York Times article by Benjamin Weiser. In this article, a lawyer by the name of Robert M. Levy visited the facilities in the 1980s and was quoted stating the following. People would be naked on the wards. They would have shoelaces tying their pants up instead of belts. In many ways, it was still like a concentration camp. End quote. In 1983, New York apparently announced plans to close Willowbrook, which had changed names to the Staten Island Developmental Center by 1974. As populations dropped down, the remaining clients were moved out of the facility and into group homes by September of 1987, so a couple years after the quote-unquote plans started happening. Parts of the original property were acquired by the city of New York, with plans to incorporate it into the City University of New York. By 1995, a school with grades ranging from kindergarten to grade 12 was opened. The remaining portions of the property that haven't been sold off or remodeled are apparently owned and operated by the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities. A lot of the former patients are reportedly still alive, more than likely continue to remember the traumas they experienced while being at Willowbrook. The political reaction to this case led to the enactment of legislation such as the Protection and Advocacy System in the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act, the Developmental Disabilities Assistance and Bill of Rights Act, and the CRIPA, which were the first federal civil rights lawsuits protecting people with disabilities, leading to the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. Before we wrap up this case, there is a piece of true crime I did want to shed a light on. Child kidnapper and murderer Andre Rand, also known as Cropsy or New York's Boogeyman, was once an orderly and a physical therapist at Will during the 1960s. Some may remember Andre from when Christy discussed the boogeyman back in our first round of midweek mini spooks, so I won't be doing a deep dive since she's already kind of discussed it a little bit, but I will discuss some of it and its connection to Willowbrook. It's been documented that one of Andre's victims, Jennifer Schweiger, was buried in a shallow grave nearby Willowbrook in 1987. Andre would be charged and later convicted with a first-degree kidnapping charge for Jennifer, which this was apparently a result of the jury not being able to confirm him being guilty of first-degree murder. Andre was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, and reportedly he would have been eligible for parole in 2008 had 
had he not been convicted again for a second kidnapping charge. From what I gathered, Andre is still in custody at the Greenhaven Correctional Facility and has a parole eligibility date of June 30th, 2037. He will be 93 when he is eligible for parole. And to me, I just wanted to talk about him a little bit because it just blows my mind that he once worked at Willowbrook. And it makes you kind of wonder, what did he do there in terms of whether or not he was appropriate to the clients that were there or what exactly went down whenever he did interact with clients or patients, I guess I should say. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because as far as my understanding, his victim profile was children and he worked at a residential facility filled with children. So it's a little... It's a little weird and it kind of makes you wonder, right? I mean, I hope I'm not the only one who's wondering about this, but if I am, let me know, leave a comment, definitely share your thoughts. I just thought this was a very interesting connection to Willowbrook for sure. So to kind of summarize this month's weird distraction bonus episode. During the course of this month's episode research, I became a bit teetered as to my general thoughts on Willowbrook. I'd like to thank most institutions in its time, try to have good intentions during their creation periods, such as Willowbrook. I think the idea of providing shelter and care for folks that weren't unable to care for themselves or maybe their family weren't able to care for them or there weren't really any community programs that were able to care for them has a good intention underlying in it. However, without proper funding, planning, programming, staffing, and overall support, Willowbrook and similar places ended up becoming increasingly more problematic than full of potential. When it comes to the hepatitis studies, I know some might argue that the research done helped the medical field, but but similar to the MIT Science Club, it came at a traumatic cost for those having to be involved. Because of what happened at Willowbrook, it will forever be known as a stain in the American medical field's history. I will say though, on a semi-lighter note, this case did make ways for how those living with any kind of disability would be further supported. In a direct quote from the Disability Justice website to elaborate further, quote, this case set important precedents for the humane and ethical treatment of people living with developmental disabilities living in institutions. Thus, in turn, served as the impetus for accelerating the pace of community placements for people with developmental disabilities, expanding community services, increasing the quality and availability of day programs, and establishing the right of children with disabilities to a public education." End quote. So that is this month's Weird Distractions bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed. Hopefully I did an okay job doing it solo. More than likely gonna be doing it solo next month. So if you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, anything to that nature, please reach out. Please let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, we got you. Bye. Bye.